0: hi guys welcome back to what's on your mind happy tuesday december 5th i hope you all are doing so well i feel like this is the actual first time in a long time that i've Talking to y'all real time. So, thank you so much for being here. Today, I am talking to Omika Jakaria. Omika is one third of the viral sister trio, the Jakaria Sisters. Her and her sisters have amassed an audience of over 700,000 people across their platforms as a unit and individually. Omika has amassed nearly. 100,000 people across her platforms. She's a newly certified coach with the, the Jay Shetty Coaching Program, helping people redefine fulfillment and flourishment through mindfulness, coaching, yoga, and meditation. Omika is here to share her journey along with some big sister advice on how to turn FOMO into JOMO, which is the joy of missing out, dating, college, and so much more. If you guys haven't checked out her instagram her instagram is going to be linked in the show notes along with her sisters and the jacaria sisters tiktok i'm sure you guys have seen them especially if you're a brown girl i mean sorry <laughs> but that's so true <laughs> anyway i hope you guys enjoy it and i will see you soon bye before we get started why don't you give us a little rundown of who you are and what you do in your own words
1: sure thank you so much for having me and i'm excited to um to get into our conversation. Uh, so I'm Omika. I'm based out of New York City. I'm a born and bred New Yorker, super proud of that part of my identity. And uh, I have a lot of different passions and interests, um, including a few things. Uh, so full-time, I work as a management consultant. I work in strategy and business uh, and I uh, have worked in a variety of different industries, including tech, nonprofits, venture, uh, and a different a variety of different business roles. And uh, in addition to that, I'm really passionate about mental health, well-being, emotional resilience. And so for the past uh, 10 plus years, I've been pretty steeped in yoga, meditation, spirituality, personal growth, and development. So I'm also a certified yoga teacher, meditation teacher, Reiki energy healing practitioner. I've done several uh, long meditation courses to really dive into my practice. And recently I uh, also began coaching as a life and success coach. So I'm excited to do more of that going forward.
0: With the Jay Shetty Foundation, right? As of today? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. So I uh, I did my course with the Jay Shetty Certification School for Coaching and uh, was doing that for the past few months. And then finally, like you said, wrapped it up today. So that's been great.
0: Congratulations. Congratulations. I'm glad that you're here to celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) So to start off, I think I know you have your hands on a lot of different things. And I feel like there's so many different things that we have to touch on and we will. But going back to let's just start at the beginning, if that works for you, starting at, you know, being born and brought up in New York and what that experience was like and, how you think that impacted your outlook on life but also just how you approach things generally
1: <laughs> um, um okay yeah so as you mentioned uh i was born and raised in brooklyn my parents moved to the us uh, from india in the 1980s and gosh i feel like growing up in new york city having my entire childhood here was such a formative piece of my life and has really informed um like everything that i do in terms of the choices that i make so a couple things come to mind one Growing up in New York definitely made me very, uh, very globally and culturally aware because I grew up with a lot of different people from different backgrounds and cultures, as I'm sure I can relate, as I'm sure you can relate to. And that really sparked my interest in wanting to learn more about the world. I uh, ended up going to college in Washington, D.C. to study international relations. So I feel like a lot of the uh, the interest that I had in international relations and understanding the world stemmed from growing up in New York city where I was surrounded by people who are really different from me. So that's one piece of it. Um, I also had the second would be, uh, being immersed in this melting pot also allowed me to experience those different cultures in a lot of ways. So of course I had the Indian side with my parents, but I also grew up in a heavily, uh, in a heavily Russian and Ukrainian community in Brooklyn. And so I had a Russian babysitter growing up. So I learned how to speak Russian before I learned English and went to school, um, so it was just an amazing experience of a lot of different pieces of of you know identity melding together and creating this new type of identity by growing up in New York. And then another piece that I would highlight is around the arts and um, especially the performing arts. So I grew up dancing, and I feel like a lot of the experiences I had from I started, with Russian ballet when I was younger, and that of course stemmed from being in New York and having access to world class arts and culture opportunities uh, across the city. So that was amazing. And I think the final thing I would add is that uh, obviously growing up in New York taught me a very, um, very different pace of life. Just in terms of you know working hard, being gritty, being resilient. That I'm sure anybody who grows up in New York can relate to. Yeah, I, I feel like I you know I walk fast, I talk fast. Um, and I just live life pretty fast. And that comes from being in New York. Of course, I've had to unlearn a lot of that in order to, you know, regulate my nervous system. And I feel like a lot of the work that I do now, especially around wellness and well-being, is informed by creating this antidote to growing up in New York, where I was constantly surrounded by a fast paced, competitive cutthroat lifestyle. So yeah, I think those are, those are some of the main things that I would highlight around growing up in New York.
0: In your Instagram bio too, you have, I help overachievers redefine purpose and growth, right? So I think, I mean, as a New Yorker, I feel it. Like the one person in front of you is walking just even a step off. You're like, oh my God. And you want to run. I want to touch a little bit more on what that growing up was like and how it impacted your mental health and what, you know, like the mental experience of being a child in New York growing up here, now being here, the pace of life. I realize now how different it is to all parts of the world. Like
1: this is a very unique place, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I would say a couple things come to mind. One is that probably in the time that you're growing up and this makes me feel old, but the time that you're growing up in, I think it's way more normalized to talk about a lot of these topics around mental health and anxiety and high performance, overachieving, and how that impacts you as a whole person, right? Uh, when I was growing up, and you know, hopefully it's, it wasn't too long ago, but back then, I mean, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all of these ways to normalize these conversations. So for me, it came up in a couple different ways. One was that I know I know you can relate to this as well, uh, is that I went to one of the specialized high schools in New York, which is, of course, very competitive. It's known to be that type of cutthroat environment. And it was just really normalized there to to always be anxious, always be stressed. That kind of was the almost the expectation as soon as you started freshman year, it was very much focused on, You know, where are you going to go to college? And that is going to completely define your self-worth. And in in addition to defining your self-worth, it also defines how your peers view you, how your parents view you, and ultimately how you view yourself. So that really impacted me because, again, that was all I knew. That was the default. And even thinking about the specialized high schools, again, I know you can relate to this it's not just that it starts in ninth grade. It starts when you're in elementary school, right? So my parents would tell me like, you're going to have to go to these schools. And this is why we're in New York city. My parents thought about moving out to the suburbs several times and they actually didn't because they wanted to stay in New York city so that my sisters and I could attend the specialized high schools. And so we did, we, we all went to specialized high schools. And, um, so it was very much ingrained from, I mean, I, probably as early as first grade, I remember hearing about these different schools and thinking about how to work our way up to that, right? So we also applied to middle school. Once you applied to middle school, a lot of people from our middle school then went to those specialized high schools. So it was just kind of the way things were done. Of course, that carried over into college. I left New York for college, but you still have that kind of mentality. It carries over into your career. So it wasn't really until my early to mid-20s that I started to question a lot of those things that I'd been taught just because I realized that a lot of those external things were simply external. I felt like the goalpost would keep on moving. I felt even in high school, I was at one of the best schools, but I felt like I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't being enough. I wasn't enough as a person, right? So that was sort of just ingrained. I don't know anybody who felt like good about themselves in those moments. Um, So I feel really passionately about these things because it's something that, again, it's these stories and narratives that are embedded into us in certain households in the city, since we're really young. And it takes a lot of undoing and detangling to actually question those things that we have been taught and then grow and heal from that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that that experience, a lot I tell a lot of people, like, oh, what was it like here? And applying to middle school, applying to high school, applying to college are essentially the same thing here because you are doing the college application process three times in your life as a New Yorker. Well. Most people are, some people are, depending on, you know, depending on the environment that you're in, it can really take a toll on you because it's constant and it's from the day that you are put into school. What was, what was it like having, you know, Indian parents? What was, what was that experience like? Do you think growing up as a kid in New York, going to the specialized high schools, what was,
1: what was your relationship How did it develop? Yeah, I know that is a a really good question because I feel that my relationship with my parents has evolved in so many ways, especially in the past few years as I've gotten older and come to appreciate a lot about them. I think when I was younger, I definitely felt a bit of, of course, I felt gratitude. I understood, you know, how much they had sacrificed and all of those narratives. Right. Um, But as I you know, when I was in those processes, I definitely at times would feel some sort of resentment of feeling like, you know, I'm feeling this pressure. Although I will, to be fair to my parents, I will say that they are, um, I find them to be very encouraging and trusting. So even though they pushed me, you know, in some direction, they were never forceful about pursuing a certain career or saying, you know, you need to go to medical school or, be or to law school or become an engineer or anything like that. They never forced me into any of those paths. Um, they were more focused on just making sure that we got a really good education and that we were surrounded by good influences and we're continuing to be ambitious. So I would say I really, of course, appreciate that. That being said, I do think that when I was younger, I felt sometimes a bit of resentment towards them in terms of, uh, you know, I just felt like nothing I would do would be enough. I never felt like they would be proud of me. I knew that they now I know, you know, I have hindsight and I have a little bit more life experience and maturity and I know, you know, they are really proud, but they wouldn't show it in the same way as other parents. Right. So I think there's a big cultural gap there where I just always felt like I eventually had to learn, am I doing something in order to please my parents or am i doing it because i'm supposed to be doing it and i'm doing this for myself so that's a big question that keeps coming up even now as i go through other life decisions i have to ask myself is this when i'm making a decision that's giving me anxiety is it really that inner child in me that needs that love and attention and support from my parents that i that i wanted and of course i had it but is it that i want it to be expressed in a different way is it that i'm craving that unconditional validation and affirmation in some way Or am I making this decision because it is aligned to my highest self, to my purpose, and it's truly going to give me everlasting joy? So I think that's a constant struggle of, again, doing some of that inner child healing, Um, again, giving my parents the credit that they deserve for sure, but also recognizing that there were bumps in the road and uh, there is always tension. Um, And I think as I got older, I also realized that My parents are just human and humans have their strengths, weaknesses, faults, things that they are amazing at, um, things that make them them. And once I sort of took them off of that pedestal of saying, oh, anything that they say is right and that I have to follow it, it just really healed our relationship because now I can see them as people. I see that they have their own Hopes and dreams and goals and fears and insecurities, right? They're just people like me. And I can appreciate that as an adult, especially now that I, when I think about it, my mom had me when she was 25. So I am already, like, I'm not 25 anymore. So it's like if I, if I would have had a child a few years ago, I would have experience what she was experiencing. And I felt like when I was 25, I mean, sure, I knew a lot and I had a lot of experiences, but I can't even imagine what she was going through, right? Moving to a new country, not knowing anybody, being um, married to my dad in an arranged marriage, barely knowing him and moving here. And then in addition to that, navigating a new culture and having a child. And, you know, it just makes me feel a lot more, I don't know if it's forgiveness or gratitude, but it's just a little bit more grace that I can offer to them when I think about what they've been through
0: Uh, empathy understanding I mean I can't imagine having a child at 25 like that is wow with that in mind you're talking a lot about the inner child and healing that how do we identify the inner child in us and what can we do to help that inner child heal?
1: hmm I think there are a couple of different ways to identify that inner child. One is to think about if you kind of strip away, and I know this is a little bit abstract, but if you strip away all of the layers of you, so all of the titles and identifiers of saying, you know, I went to this school, I have this career, I have these interests. Like there's so much that we take on over time, right? We say, we define ourselves based on a lot of these external accomplishments. So if you were to strip all of that away, like who are you at your core? I think that ultimately leads to a little bit of that inner child stuff. And the reason it leads to that is because when you're born as a little baby, you don't have any of that masking you. You you're born as a completely innocent, unadulterated human being who, who is just so impressionable by everything going on around them. Right. So even I heard this thing the other day, that was that, that said language even is a man-made construct and language creates reality. And when you're a baby, you don't know what language is. You don't know any words. You don't know any concepts. You don't understand institutions, systems, society, like none of that exists within you. You are just fully emotive and expressive and you feel things, you know, there's a reason why babies laugh and cry so freely. And then over time we start to suppress a lot of those things because we're told it's not good to express your sadness it's not good to be overly excited about things and we kind of like really narrow our range of expression so that is is a big thing and i think another thing that helps with to, with identifying the inner child is thinking about those moments or activities that brought you joy as a child right so those things that maybe you stopped doing as you got older because you were thinking well i can't do this anymore because it's not grown up enough or i've outgrown this in some way right and When you're able to maybe return to those activities and moments that you really enjoyed doing as a child, just for the sake of it, just for the pure fun of it, that also is a way to identify that inner child. And then for me, it also comes up when I think about my own insecurities or fears, whether that is with my friendships, with my family, with romantic relationships, you know, those moments where I feel hurt or vulnerable, those are really good moments to explore Why am I reacting in this way? Is it something that is reminding me of something that happened when I was younger? Is there something that I need to process and integrate that I never did? Because, you know, maybe when I was younger, I was really upset about something or crying about something. Maybe I was upset about something that my parents said to me. And then I wasn't allowed to express that frustration or sadness because in my household, we didn't talk about emotions, we never labeled them, we never we're allowed to feel anything fully, and so a lot of that stuff gets repressed, and then maybe it's getting reactivated as an adult in new types of relationships. So those are some of the things that come to mind. I know that's kind of you know a lot of different ways of looking at it, but I, I think it resonates in different ways for different people in different moments as well. So it's not just one thing. It is it's kind of your your pure inner self.
0: I feel like there's a lot of beauty in like you're a child and you don't know anything, and you're a chi- you're formulating your opinions of the world and in your eyes, what is, is there any beauty in embracing the inner child in you on a day-to-day basis? And if so, how do you think that that can show up for people? How does it show up
1: for you even? Yeah, I think there are a couple things that come to mind. One is creating more play. And I think that takes a different It looks different for everybody, right? When you're younger, you might be playing on a playground, you might be doing more arts and crafts, et cetera. And maybe as an adult, that's not, you're not, you know, swinging on the monkey bars or going down a slide. But I think what that playground experience represents is simply having fun and not getting attached to an outcome of something and truly surrendering, enjoying the process. I feel for me, especially again, growing up in these environments of being in ultra competitive cutthroat spaces. I felt like anything I would do had to have some sort of end result, right? So it's about, uh, you know, thinking about, well, how is this going to make me look? Or how am I going to succeed at it? So it's really hard for me sometimes to take a step back and, like, do something that I'm quote-unquote bad at doing. But, like, what does bad even mean and why am I defining it that way? So this is a great example. Actually, last night I was at this – I went to this uh, art night. It was an intuitive painting – art experience. It was immersive. It was really cool. And it's not something that I I necessarily would have booked for myself, but my partner booked it for us. And we had this really cool immersive art experience. And the whole purpose of it was like they had different visuals and sound effects and different. It was just like this all immersive sensory experience. And they had all these videos playing and then they gave us a blank canvas and a bunch of different paint colors. And they said basically you just have this blank canvas. You're not being told what to paint. So sometimes when you go to an art night or a paint and sip, you know, you, you have something that you're replicating. This was straight up. Like they were playing videos and sounds and different colors and, and effects. And there was like fog and strobe lights and stuff. And it was like, you just have to, you know, paint whatever comes through, whatever that is. Like you have this blank canvas. And I could not tell you, I was, I got anxious by that because I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what to do. Right. I'm like, where do I start? What am I supposed to do? And like, there was truly no right or wrong answer. It was just this immersive activity. It's meant to be meditative. It's meant to be somewhere where you let go and let your intuition flow through. And even afterwards, I kind of caught myself saying like, oh, wow, that person painted this and this person painted that and being like, oh my gosh, like mine doesn't look like that. And that was kind of a great example of, you know, how not to, (laughs) how not to embrace that inner child. Um, And my partner and I were talking afterwards and I was like, oh my gosh, like I really, you know, I, I feel that sense of perfectionism and overachievement coming out, even in these moments where it's like truly just supposed to be this experience. Like I'm so hard on myself, you know? Um, so I think that was a great experiment of, you know, reflecting back to me areas that I can still work on in terms of surrendering and letting creativity flow and play. Um, and even just, again, creating those moments of unstructured creativity where the result does not matter. It's about the process. And it just, it does not matter what you come up with. It does not, nobody is grading you. Nobody is judging you. Nobody's going to make any sort of value judgment about you afterwards. Um, It's truly about just letting go. So I thought that was a good, you know, a good way to try to do that.
0: Of course, there are certain things that we have to do as people. We do attribute value to numbers, especially in the society, but at the end of the day, life is an experience. It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be miserable. You're not supposed to spend every day being like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to live this day over again. Right? Like, I, mm-hmm. I, it's an experience. And at the end of the day, it's your experience and what you choose to make of it and what you choose to do with that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's in your hands at the end of the day. And also there are certain things that you can do to make it more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So going back to this sense of overachieving and breaking out of a kind of loophole, a trap, whatever you want to call it, do you feel like Mm -hmm. at any point being, because you're the eldest sister, right? And you had played all these, I'm sure as an eldest sister, you play a lot of roles. So do you think that that impacted you at all? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, I think about this often, especially as I've been closer to my family now than I was when I lived away from New York for 11 years. Um, I moved back last year. And so I, I am closer physically to my sisters now. And we spent a lot of time together, which is awesome. I think being the eldest and especially in my family. So I'm one of three, I have two younger sisters. They're five and six years younger than me. So we have a bit of a gap and the two of them are actually pretty close in age. So there was a bit of a stark difference in terms of our lifestyles and life moments that we experience. So for them, they went to college pretty much at the same time. They went to high school at the same time. They moved to back to the city at the same time. Um, so they have a lot more things that happen in tandem. For me, I was always a bit the odd one out or kind of the first one to do things, right? Just by definition of being the oldest. And um, I think one thing that comes to mind, I mean, I love it. I absolutely love being the oldest sister and I love my younger sisters. And I just, you know, it's it's really informed who I am. Um, I think one way that it's shown up a lot in my life is that I'm always the first one to do things and try things out and to not only, you know, try out new career paths and educational paths and whatnot, but also develop a relationship with my parents. I was the first one to do that. So it almost feels like I wasn't really pushing my boundaries with (laughs) them. Maybe my sisters get to push boundaries a little bit more. Um, but I do feel like it's a lot of, uh, uh, going through things for the first time for everyone in the family. And it was really interesting because actually my middle sister, um, she was going through something recently where it was it was one of those life milestones that uh, she was going through it before I was. And that was really interesting because it was the first time ever where she was going to go through something potentially earlier than me. And I actually felt this immense sense of relief because I was like, oh, I get to see how my parents are going to react. And uh, I get to learn from this experience. And I was like, whoa, is this what it feels like? to be a younger sibling. Um, And it was this like wild epiphany that I had um, where I was like, oh, wow, it really takes some of that pressure off when you see somebody go through it before you. So I've never really had that experience. It's been, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, it's um, being because my parents moved here from India. I was always the first to to have all those big life milestones. And then also, you know, as an as a child of immigrants, but then also as the first in the family. So it is a lot about, you know, being resourceful, being that pioneer, which I think are all amazing traits that nobody else could have ever taught me. Right. A lot of just figuring things out on your own and, and going out there and, and doing things. Um, so overall, I think it's absolutely informed me or informed my life experience in a lot of ways.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I can relate. I'm also an older sister, uh, but it, yeah, it's an interesting experience and it's one I wouldn't trade for the world, but sometimes I deeply, deeply envy and, <laughs> you know, wonder what it's like to be on the other side of the coin. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just to touch a little bit on um, chatting about FOMO, I'm pretty sure I was reading in your Instagram uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, just talking about FOMO and how that shows up and feeling the need to do everything all the time feeling the need to be in a thousand different places all at once. I think that is also a lot of times the result of living in the city, but can you tell us about how you were able to learn to handle that feeling and yeah, just really how you were able to manage it and how you learned to handle it?
1: Yeah. I felt um, when I moved back to New York last year, All of last summer, essentially, I was telling people that I don't feel like I've been sleeping at all. Forget about enough. I I just wasn't sleeping. And here's the thing. I was sleeping. I would go to bed and be asleep, but I didn't feel rested. And that's literally just because I was constantly overstimulated. I was constantly on. My nervous system was so hyperactive. And I quickly realized that that was not sustainable. And a lot of the things that I was doing in places that I was going to and events that I was attending were actually very distracting in many ways or exhausting and weren't really giving me that sense of nourishment and fulfillment that I wanted. So this year I took a pretty different approach and started to focus on JOMO, right? The joy of missing out and really being selective and changing my default set point. So instead of saying, Hey, my default is I'm going to do everything, go to everything, be everywhere, be everything to everyone. I decided that I actually want to do the opposite, which is be nothing, go nowhere, do nothing other than what I really, really want to do. And that actually showed up a lot in terms of me then focusing on saying, hey, I want to pursue coaching more seriously, or I want to be more involved in the wellness community and be able to lead those classes and workshops and build out my community there. So I really shifted my focus from, you know, just saying yes to everything, doing everything to saying, Hey, I know these options are all available to me in the city. There's always something that you can do. Um, but what is it that's going to, well, one, what are my goals? And then two, what is it that's going to get me closer to my goals? Because if it's not getting me closer to those goals or to building that community, then it's really not a great use of my time. Right. And time is one of the most precious assets that we have. So just really respecting my time in that way, respecting myself, Cause I did feel like I was burning out. I was feeling really unhealthy. My physical health was taking a toll. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't keep up. I was just really, really exhausted. Um, so over the past several months, I've changed a lot of things in my life to again focus on JOMO and it feels amazing. It's it's a great shift.
0: It's really nice to hear you say that. And that's honestly the first time that I've heard of the acronym Jomo. So oh really? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um can you tell us a little bit more about the shifts that you made? In like the tangible things that you've done in the last couple of months to focus,
1: shift your focus. Yeah. So one thing that I um was reflecting on recently, and I've shared a bit about this in some of my Instagram stories, and I want to share more about it eventually, is my mindset shift of a couple things. So to give a bit of background, three years ago, um my sisters and I essentially went viral on social media for dancing, and that's been it's been an absolutely amazing journey. We've had so much just success in a lot of ways, especially in terms of working with different brands and building that community, teaching different classes. And it's been amazing. At the same time, that meant that I started to spend a lot of time on social media. And suddenly I started to feel really jaded and exhausted by a lot of things um, to the point where I felt like I was losing that fire, not only for social media, but also for dance, which was really scary because my whole life dance has been my number one source of Stress relief of happiness, of just connecting with myself and being expressive. So that was really scary. And so, what I realized was, I started to, through my meditation practice, so I did it, my, um, I did one of my silent 10 day meditation retreats at the end of last year. And that was really my way of resetting and unplugging from a lot of things. And it was very challenging, but it was great. Um, through that, I realized that our brains are really sensitive to, uh, to dopamine and different neurotransmitters that we are impacted by, especially through social media, right? So for example, when you are on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, wherever you are, TikTok, um, it sort of impacts your brain in the same way as if you were gambling. So it creates this addictive behavior. And the reason we're so drawn to it is because it creates this feeling of instant gratification. So, you know, you post something, you get instant gratification right away. You get those likes, you get those comments, you get messages and you feel really good about yourself. But unfortunately, that is really short-lived. And the more and more it happens, the more your brain gets sensitized to that. So the next time it happens, the effect is less, is less, is less. And then your brain is just depleted and it doesn't, it's not impacted positively anymore by those stimuli. And that was really scary. So what I actually shifted my focus to was, and I realized this several weeks ago, was moving away from instant gratification activities, which there's nothing wrong with, but really shifting my focus from doing that to delayed gratification activities. So delayed gratification activities are things like, for example, working out where it doesn't give you gratification right away. In fact, you probably don't want to work out, right? You wake up and you're like, I don't really want to do this. But you know that once you do it, you're going to get that delayed gratification. You're going to feel great afterwards. So that was a big thing. Um, working towards any big goal where you're not going to see the goal through for several, you know, a long period of time. So for example, that related to my coaching thing, that was a big goal of mine. It wasn't something that was going to give me that instant gratification, that instant hit of dopamine, but it was something that over time was going to be really rewarding because it's about working towards a bigger goal. So those were probably two of the biggest shifts that I made was around around pursuing that coaching certification. And then second around, uh, I hired a trainer. So I've been working with this trainer for the past four months on really getting my health in check um, in terms of everything that I'm eating, my habits, my workouts, weight training, all of that. And it's just, that has given me a really strong sense of self-trust and, uh, an empowerment that I, you cannot get through instant gratification activities. Um, so I know that's a bit of a, maybe a long winded way of answering your question, but that was a big insight that I've had recently that I think is really important.
0: Not at all. I really appreciate you sharing and going into detail. It sounds a lot like the JOMO and the delaying gratification go hand in hand, really. Like yeah. it seems like there's a mm-hmm. lot of parallels. Yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> so we didn't get to touch a lot on the dating scene that I have wanted to. I don't know what your experience with uh dating was like when you were younger. What was what was the attitude like? What was the connotation growing up around dating and just romantic relationships in general to start?
1: Yeah, it's very similar to what you're saying around it was framed as absolutely a distraction, not something to focus on, um, very taboo, especially in my house. And I think especially me being the oldest, I felt that the most, I think my sisters feel that a lot less. Um, so, so yeah, throughout my childhood, it was never something that was really talked about. It was not something that, you know, I was ever encouraged to make time for, which honestly made a lot of sense. I don't really disagree with any of that. Um, but then at the same time, it was like, after I graduated from college, definitely a switch flipped around. Okay, great. Um, you know, are when are you, uh, when are you going to meet someone to marry? Right. So, and I'm very lucky that my parents have never been super forceful or anything like that, but I do think that growing up, it was never, never a priority in the same way that I saw some of my other peers, um, experience it or, you know, be able to talk about it with their parents in the same way. So and to again going back to the idea of giving my parents more grace they i can't really fault them for it because it's not something that they had experienced correct so when they were younger they never they never dated they had an arranged marriage so it was something new for them to experience and understand as well
0: yeah absolutely i mean i i i would agree um yeah. it just it it alters your relationship with it i feel like later on so how do you mm-hmm. think that, that attitude impacted the way you approached relationships and your attitude towards them. And even in college, what that experience was like.
1: Yeah. College was the first time where I started to date someone and I was in a relationship for a couple of years. And that was a whole other, um, a whole other issue because it was not something again, that I could really talk. My mom knew about it. My dad really didn't. Um, but it was super taboo and it was not anything that anybody was happy about. Um, and the person that I was dating was not Indian. So that, that was a whole other piece of it. And I was in college. So I think that was just a really uh, tricky situation. Also, that relationship was not very positive for a lot of reasons. And on the bright side, that ending that relationship after two years actually is what led me to pursuing yoga and meditation, was because I was trying to heal and focus on myself and learn about myself after that. So I, you know, it was a huge catalyst for my own transformation. So I don't. I don't um you know regret any of those experiences but it was still it was still weird during college it wasn't really something that I could talk about or it was not accepted and then um after college it's again something that I was really not focusing on so my desire was to after college I moved to Austin and that was a new place where I didn't know anybody I was starting a new job I was trying to create this new life. And at the same time, I also knew that I didn't want to be there long-term because I really wanted to move abroad. So within my first year in Austin, I knew that I wanted to leave my job. I wanted to move to Asia or just somewhere international. And so at that time, dating was not a priority. Then I moved abroad and I was having an amazing time. I was dating more. So I would go on more dates and meet people. Like I was very open to that, but I wasn't really looking for anything super long-term, or I was nervous to pursue something long-term because I knew that I would eventually move back to the U S and I didn't want to put anybody in that situation of getting into a really serious relationship and then having to leave. So again, when I, for those first four years out of college, I was very much focused on myself, very much focused in my career on having those new experiences. And I regret none of it. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, do I think that had I had more experiences, I would have more dating experiences, I would have maybe learned more about myself and learn more about dating in general. Like, yeah, absolutely. But that just wasn't really my, my, um, priority at that time. And then in 2019, I moved back to the States and I went to pursue my MBA. So when I was in business school it was really the first time that I was kind of ready for something a little bit more serious. At that point I was in my mid twenties and I thought, okay, maybe this is a good time to start taking this more seriously. But again, I just felt so ill-equipped to even understand like, how do you date? I mean, I, I, I find it very easy to meet new people and get along with them. Like I love having conversations and I'm curious and I, I love meeting new people and you know, it's, it's really fun for me, but I just didn't even understand like, what do you ask? Or how do you know if something is serious? Or like, I had literally no idea. And it took me several years to finally even start to understand, you know, What is it that I'm looking for? What are my standards? What are my boundaries? Like, I'd never explored any of that. And a lot of the rhetoric that I'd heard around relationships growing up was, now that I think about it, a little bit toxic because it was very much based on, you know, people making certain compromises that are not always good for them, very normative in terms of gender roles. And, you know, of course, that's totally fine. And I agree with some of that. But I had never really taken that time to question it or understand what the alternative could look like. And Um, you know, even in the alternative, are there pieces of that more traditional mindset that could actually be helpful? Like I just, I had no, I had never dissected any of that until, until I was in my mid twenties. And then I realized that I was just getting into the string of really toxic situationships or experiences with men. And it was about two years ago that I decided to Um, To really explore that because I thought, hey, I'm having one bad experience after another. I really don't understand. I do want to be in a serious relationship and be married one day, but I don't even know, like, what am I doing wrong? I had no idea. And so then I went, I started going to therapy for the first time two years ago, which was absolutely amazing. And um, again, it was, I was the first in my family to even do that, explore that. It was so scary to be like, okay, I'm going to go to therapy, not only for the dating stuff, but also just, you know, unpack other other childhood things and whatnot, and my own behavior patterns. Um, And I really, I thank therapy for bringing a light to a lot of my own behaviors and the part I was playing in in those negative situations. Um, So yeah, it's really evolved over time. I know that's a very, very detailed explanation of a lot of those moments of transition, but I mean, I don't even think I've reflected on it in this way. So I, yeah, I guess I appreciate you asking that question. No,
0: yeah. Thank you for being so willing to talk about it. And I actually, I really appreciate you going into details. Do you wish at all that you had had more experiences growing up or even in college
1: with relationships? I mean, sure. I I think it would have been great. I think there's absolutely no harm um, to it. I think ultimately relationships are just a mirror for what's going on within. So I think relationships are an amazing way to you know, to learn about yourself, to learn about how you interact with others. So absolutely. I think that would have been great. Would it have taken away from some of the other things I was doing possibly? Um, but no, I mean, I think it's human to, to have relationships and to explore them. So I think that would be great. Um, that being said, I, yeah, I mean, again, I don't, I don't really regret how things played out, but I do think that I I sort of had to learn things a little bit later in my life in terms of, how to even navigate relationships. And again, I feel like my parents are learning alongside with me. Do you think
0: there's any way to do some of that work and do some of that self-exploration without being in a relationship?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think most of the, most of the self-exploration that I went through, especially I would say over the past eight or 10 years was on my own and it was so valuable. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that's what I would say to your previous question too, is that Sure. I would have loved more experience, but nothing can replace many of those personal experiences that I had, especially around changing cities. Many times, like living in seven different cities, changing jobs, going to grad school. I did that all on my own. And I think it's really powerful and important to me to be able to say like, yeah, I did that on my own. And that's not even, you know, there's of course like this hyper independence narrative around it, but I actually think it's amazing and it's empowering. And I would want that for anyone. Like if I have a daughter, I would hope that, you know, she has some of those experiences too. Right. So I think, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I know that nobody in my family, no females in my family previously had the opportunity to do that, to even explore their own interests and what they wanted uh, on their own. It was always in the context of a man and a man supporting you. And I, I even hear that sometimes from my parents of, yeah, you can do that when you are married or your husband will do this. You know, they would say these things to me in college. And now they've seen that I've lived this really colorful, illustrious life without, you know, a man with me and it's totally fine. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you can do a lot of exploration. That being said, I, um, I have, I met my, my now partner who I'm in a relationship with about a year ago. And it, this relationship that I'm in now, which is really like my first serious relationship as an adult has been, absolutely amazing and challenging in its own way. Because again, I went into it thinking, oh, I've had all these experiences. I've done all this personal growth and work. But when you're in a relationship, you can't, you can no longer run away from yourself because you have another person reflecting back to you, all of your fears and insecurities and calling you out on, on behaviors that are not serving your highest purpose and the relationship. So I do think that as much as I felt like I had done so much work on myself before I met him, I have grown exponentially in the time that I've been with him. But again, they go hand in hand because if I hadn't done that work, I don't think I would have the relationship in this healthy manner that I have now. So it kind of, it absolutely all, all intertwines.
0: I love that. I love that. And one last question, if you could go back and talk to your 16 year old self, your younger self, your pre-college self, what are some things that you would say to her? Oh man. Gosh, Even, I would like, after say, you're college, like just your younger
1: yeah, self. <laughs> just a previous self. Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the things that come to mind are maybe they sound cliche, but I think cliches exist for a reason, right? Because they are universal. Um actually I would say, you know, there's these points around taking care of yourself, like I would, I would remind her to take care of herself and have that level of ease and relaxation in her life in some way. Um, because I do think that again, growing up, it was all about hustle, hustle, hustle. And again, it's not even just growing up. It's even now in corporate America and the educational institutions that we're a part of. It's all about hustle and and constantly being in that, you know, traditionally you think about it as like that masculine, feminine or yin and yang energy. So it's being in that very young energy, very active and just constantly moving, creating, being super action oriented, which is great. And that's a society that we live in. But in order for that to exist, you need to have the other side of it, which is around being calm, being relaxed, being able to receive and surrender. And those are all qualities that I only started working on a few years ago. So I would just encourage her to, um, to think about that. So that's one thing. And actually that relates pretty well to something that I read on online, a few months ago, it was around, you know, you see all kinds of women out there. You see powerful women, successful women, nurturing women and responsible women and whatnot, but you never see a relaxed woman. Right. And we associate relaxed with being, and I I, I'm forgetting the creator who wrote this. Like I'm not trying to take credit for it because I saw somebody wrote it, but, um, we associate relaxation with being unproductive or being lazy, being unworthy but it's so important, right? In order to be active and to be impactful and work hard, you need to also be able to relax and receive and surrender. So I love that. Is so I would say explore that idea more of what it means to be a relaxed woman because we don't that doesn't exist in society, right? Even if a woman is, you know, well, no matter what she's doing, it's we're always made to feel like crap about ourselves, right? We're always made to feel like we're not enough. We're always made to feel, hey, you need to do this thing to look younger or feel younger, or you don't look a certain way anymore. Or, you know, it's just all these messages that we constantly get. It's just never enough. It's never, we can never just chill out. So I think that is something I would tell my younger self. And then another piece I would say is, um, is that your intuition is just so strong and don't deny that. Don't let other people trample on your intuition. Don't let those other voices get into your head. Really question where your desires are coming from because they're in you for a reason. You wouldn't have a desire if it wasn't meant to come through you in some way. So those are probably a couple of things that I would say.
0: Everyone's constantly going. Everyone's constantly yeah. thinking about something. They're worried about something. There's always something going mm-hmm. on. It's never just like, yeah. let me just sit for a second and absorb mm-hmm. what is happening around me. Exactly, or or yeah. not even, no, or just true. be, yeah, just be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to do this. I really, really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you, and I. This was awesome. You're you're amazing at asking questions, so no, I appreciate oh, that. It's very thoughtful. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you. I'm gonna give you a second to go ahead and shout out anything and everything that you want to shout out. So take the mic away. It's yours.
1: Oh, okay. Um, I. Anyone who's interested can connect with me on Instagram or across social media platforms, TikTok, et cetera. My handle is at jakaria So that's O-M-I-K-A-J-I-K-A-R-I-A. It's just my full name. Um, and would love to connect with anyone who wants to chat about any of these topics further.
0: Guys, thank you so, so much for listening to another episode of What's On Your Mind. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Omika, again, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting. It was a pleasure talking to you. I got to touch on a lot of things that I haven't touched on in the past just because they honestly haven't been top of mind. But, you know, new things, new new things to talk about. Happy holidays. I hope you guys have an amazing week. And I will talk to you all next week for another episode with Jason Field. Stink peek. There you go. Bye, guys.